0: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 32 of A Life in Ruins Podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I am joined by my co-hosts, as always, David Ian Howe and Conan O'Jonan. Tonight, we are interviewing Trevor Wallace. Very excited to have him on tonight, who is a documentary filmmaker and the vice president of research and education at the Explorers Club. Trevor, thank you so much for joining us tonight. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing excellent. I've been really looking forward to this. Thanks so much for invi- inviting me, guys. And yeah, I'm really excited to share about like past expeditions and, and talk more.
2: We've been really stoked to have you on. One thing we, we really were interested about is your like your your film experience. That seems to be your your forte. And the three of us in you know grad school were kind of like really interested in doing like the media side of archaeology, but there's no courses in that. And everyone kind of tells you just, I guess, do film school because that's like theological option that you see posted around college. But like that doesn't ever seem like a tangible thing for us. So can you tell us about how you got into that?
1: Yeah. I mean, a lot of people ask me sort of where's my home base and like what is my current job? And I think that when you combine two things as unstable as archaeology and in documentary filmmaking, you kind of get like the vagabond lifestyle that I have, which is probably not all that different to when you're like a grad student on and off archaeological expeditions. But yeah, I've been able to piece it together through being a sponsored artist through the New York Foundation for the Arts. So I've kind of raised money to really focus on this project, Frozen Corpses, Golden Treasures, which is this documentary miniseries. But it wasn't really quite the typical route. Like I didn't go to film school. I did study film in undergrad. And since I went to Sarah Lawrence College, where you're really kind of like choose your own adventure, I was able to make my own major in social and environmental documentary. And I was that really annoying research assistant of all my professors who took like three of their classes. And I took a lot of doc classes, a lot of human geography classes, a lot of anthropology classes, and just, just started shooting as soon as I could. And I think a lot of the old guard would tell you, you know, oh, you have to kind of build your way up working as, you know, production assistant, camera assistant within the film world. For me, I wanted, you know, where cameras now are so accessible, where you can edit off your laptop, getting the storytelling skills is much more accessible than it ever was before. The only problem is that it's also a lot more competitive. Uh, I mean, everyone now is a content creator, whatever you want to call it. So... It's really just persistence in, in my experience so far.
2: I imagine that's a game changer. I didn't think about that because yeah, like everyone's camera is like 4k now and you can just get a mic and go.
1: Yeah, I mean, and there's so many resources online. I mean, so I've been editing for you know the past 10 years, everything from you know promo videos for like you know health tech startups to videos for the Explorers Club where I get to work with you know NASA footage. But through all of it, I've basically taught myself. I mean, I think in, in school, what I think is most useful are not actually the technical skills, but the storytelling skills. of How do you build an arc? How do you develop characters? Because really, we live in a world with so many fascinating subjects, and you'll find a lot of documentarians who've put 10, 15 years into a subject, but it's really getting that story there you know, finding a way that'll appeal to a broader audience, connect to a human story that's going to get that film made. And that's been my goal.
0: So, how did this journey of you becoming a, a documentary filmmaker start?
1: Well, it, it really started when I was like a weird little kid in my backyard, just sort of inventing, you know, ancient pasts, getting inspired by things like Indiana Jones and, you know, National Geographic. But it really wasn't in the cards for me to like travel and see any of these places. But then, My mom, you know, single mom who really hustled to try to create opportunities for me, found an opportunity to go to Tanzania with the Jane Goodall Foundation. And it was really an experience that changed my life. (laughs) Yeah. There you go again, David. (laughs) There you go, man. (laughs) gotta
0: sneak that in there. you
3: are able to go. I'm not saying that David hates Jane Goodall, but he hates Jane Goodall.
1: And oh, so man, you're able. You're able words. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you went to Tanzania, right, on this Jane Goodall fellowship or grant scholarship?
1: Yeah, it was like a, it was like kind of an exchange. I worked as a volunteer in the Oakland Zoo. You know, I had a, it was like a zoo camp thing. I had my camp counselor name was Rhino, and I suffered through like you know preschoolers for a couple of weeks, and then I was able <laughs> to go to East Africa, and it was just an incredible experience that you know, open my eyes, I had like a really crummy little camera, I was not making anything noteworthy, but it was first time to be in a place where my eyes were really open. And, you know, there was a series of experiences there, one of them being held up by bandits and having my ribs broken with a club that was like, a shock as well. It was a shock to my whole worldview. And I thought, wow, this is incredibly different. This is a whole side of humanity and existence that I wasn't aware of and I wanted more of it and I wanted to bring the story to other people, you know, sort of these, these vivid realities. And I I had a lot of kind of idealistic (laughs) goals early on about how, you know, film could transform our, our perspective on the world and kind of make the world a better place. And, And I still kind of hold parts of that close to me. And I think that film can be a vehicle for change, but I think, you know, more and more it's been, trying to tell stories that just, you know, probe people to ask more questions about, you know, and now I'm looking more into ancient cultures. And what I think is you find so often these tropes about, you know, the ancient world and saying, oh, they really weren't that different from us. But for me, that's boring and actually not true. Like what I find fascinating is how different ancient cultures were and, you know, how history is not linear and how, you know, societies collapse and rebuild and dissipate and how actually the the difference is what's more interesting and in being able to value difference, different opinions, different perspectives, different whole ways of life that happened for thousands of years. That's worth telling stories about rather than, you know, we are all one kind of truisms.
2: Yeah. I see Carlton has his hand raised. I think he wants to unpack the same thing you just said.
0: I, I want to definitely start off by saying like that answer to your, uh, intrigue in human history and and really exploring that. But but we kind of glossed over very serious. Well, I mean, we for for our listeners, this isn't the first time we've talked to Trevor, but you were like 14, what, 14, 15 years old when you did that trip to Tanzania?
1: Yeah, I was a scared little acne ridden braces wearing pipsqueak (laughs) who, you know, wanted to experience Africa. And I had all these preconceived notions and yeah, getting um, held up by gunpoint and, and my ribs broken with a club was a, was a wake up call in more ways than one. And that club was yours, wasn't it? It, was, it wasn't It was mine. It was somebody in our groups, but it, <laughs> I, and I should laugh, but it's just kind of, you know, these people were, were, were desperate and they had come with guns in the middle of the night and we were staying under Mount Kilimanjaro and we heard, you know, bangs and, you know, <laughs> actually funnily enough, I was in a, There were some girls in our camp and I was trying to, you know, do my best at talking them up. Uh, I was in their their hotel rooms when we were attacked and they had been going sort of bungalow to bungalow and were taking everything they could, including people's shoes. And one of the things they took with someone else was a Maasai club that we had got at one of our, our, our visits to a Maasai Boma the week before. And yeah, they just they. They banged on our door and we thought, oh, maybe they were going to explain the noises we heard earlier, which were like shotgun shots. We were like, oh, maybe it was a door slam. It's very naive. And then we opened the door and four guys with guns and clubs and machetes ran in and they dragged our guide in and they had hit him in the shins and he was bleeding and tied up in his underwear. And yeah, they uh, started yelling for money and cameras and uh, one of the one of the girls in the room was started arguing with him for her memory card out of her camera and, and he just smacked her. And I, I wasn't going to do anything but I just, my gut reaction was to stand up from the bed I was sitting on and then I just got thrown back down and I almost don't even really remember being hit because I got hit and then this gun was pressed against my head and they were like, you know, just speaking in Swahili, deciding what they were going to do. And then eventually just thankfully bailed and then we untied our guide and, you know, eventually the police came, but yeah, it was a, made me kind of value a lot more in life. And it was definitely a turning point for me. Jeez.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's super intense. So your mom, you know, works hard to get you this extra opportunity and then you come home with some broken ribs it's just, and how did she kind of react to that situation?
0: You went on to like a Jane Goodall fellowship and had almost a Diane Fossey experience.
1: Yeah, ironic that she was definitely freaked out. And I think especially the aftermath after we got robbed, the, the, the guides, you know, and they were in our, their 20s at that point, just sort of like didn't really know what to do. We got relocated to a YMCA. We were able to call our parents. And my mom said, just, you know, be safe. Are you OK? Don't go to the hospital. Whatever you do, just come straight back home if you can handle it. I said, you know, my my ribs hurt and it's difficult to breathe, but I think I can make it. But then they ended up bringing me to the hospital anyways because I was, they brought me to the police station because I'd drawn a lot of the, uh, when the police came and questioned us, I ended up drawing a lot of the guys that I could have remembered. And um, one of the other girls in our group insisted on being brought to the hospital. So they brought us both out because it was kind of like a two stop trip. So I got to see a hospital, which was shocking, Um, you know, bloody gurneys and just really intense stuff, you know, massive lines, you know, people with sick kids. And so there was that whole experience. And then after that, they took me to the police station and they separated me from the group leader who, you know, was essentially saying, didn't, we don't want the group leader to influence him. And then took me down this hallway, which that at that point, it was just surreal. I hadn't slept at all. And there were like, Guys ch- trying to grab me out of bars, and the police chief was hitting their arms away with a stick. And then there was just a dirt courtyard with 12 guys lined up. And I had thought it would be like a two way mirror, but they were just standing right there. And uh, I remember I walked in front of them and I saw one of the guys. And I guess they had just picked him up in the market because they had one, they tried to immediately flip one of the cameras that they had stolen, and he fit the description of one of my drawings. I just remember he was this young kid, like not much older than me and terrified, and you know it was haunting to me, but it was also a big reality check of you know somebody living a parallel life that just didn't have the luck that I did
3: that's super super intense, and I know you had kind of mentioned this before, and i and when we talked before, you said you kind of wanted to bring in these these raw elements of life that you don't really. See, is that kind of how this this ultimately like affected your career? Is that you like wanted to film these things as you saw them when you were super young?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think like it it was a wake up call in a lot of ways, and I think it just made me want to experience something different. I think you know, growing up in the U.S., you kind of see the same things on TV, and you kind of have this number one culture and you know that this kind of view of historical development that we're at the pinnacle of all of this and you know and more and more now you see all this sort of ideas of America first and whatnot and it just it made me want to search for truth what really it was because it was that that was the moment where everything that I had grown up with seemed like it was only telling half the story and so that's what really drew me to documentary was was searching for a truth and I think that there's a lot of truths to be found in, in the past, in the ancient past, especially. And I think that, you know, 90% of human history, more was prehistory. So to understand who we are, the truth of who we are, looking into the past is so important.
2: I think it's safe to say, Jane Goodall I'll set you up, man. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I mean,
1: you <laughs> really got it in for, her. you can uh, you know. I, I see where you're going with that, Dave.
2: Real, real Carol Baskin. <laughs> oh, Good no, Lord. She's a wonderful woman and we will not um, bring it up again.
0: Will we guys? No, we, we absolutely will. No doubt about that. But you had this experience when you, when you were a teenager and you're, and you're kind of building upon like your kind of your resume for college. <sighs> I'm trying to think you went to undergraduate. I, I forget the location off the top of my head, but Was it your master's or your undergrad that was in educational filmmaking?
1: So I did my undergrad at Sarah Lawrence, which was in New York. And one of the reasons I wanted to go there was because I could kind of do this like mix match of my studies. Like it's based on the Oxford tutorial system. So I was taking all different types of classes. There were no core core requirements. And then I ended up doing my master's in education. uh, When I was a teacher, I did the program uh, Teach for America which was actually, it it was more of a detour in my life in a lot of ways. Like I had gotten into a Columbia journalism school and their specific documentary program, but then my mom actually got sick. So my backup plan was to be as close to her as I possibly could and actually become a teacher. And I could teach right near the assisted living spot where she was at. And uh, it ended up being an amazing way to really hone my storytelling. Uh, I was teaching seventh and eighth graders who were pretty much the hardest audience you've ever, you'll have ever you ever get, like 13, 14 year olds. And, you know, I was teaching history. I taught geography, world history. I ended up teaching art my second year, but integrating social sciences into that. And then I taught, you know, I integrated video into that as well. And then after that, just last year, I did teach a semester class in, in documentary for Sarah Lawrence College, which is where I did undergrad. But yeah, education has always been a big piece of what what I do. And I think of my films as, you know, the audience is a broader classroom. And I wanted to bridge a gap between academia, between the research world and the public and young people, especially.
3: We super appreciate you doing that. And I think, you know, because we've done so much, all of us together collectively have done so much school and, these, and watch these anthropology, archaeology, documentaries and they're just so they're so hit or miss these days you either have like these super exciting kind of anthropological you know documentaries that, that are documenting people's lives or you have these super dry not really entertaining archaeology videos about the past where even I who was super interested in archaeology was like snoozing off so I'm glad that there's people who are, you know, trying to approach that like you are doing.
1: And, you know, I don't have the perfect formula for that yet, but that is definitely the goal because anyone who's been on an archaeological dig, you know, or have done ethnographic field work in the field, you know, how exciting it is, you know, these moments, but it takes a long time to to achieve and capture those moments and to tell that story. And that's why I think a lot of the networks sometimes struggle with it is because, You know, when you parachute in with the crew after a big discovery has been made and you ask the researcher, you know, or the PI, like, oh, what happened here? And then, oh, we, you know, we uncovered this sarcophagus and they try to recreate that moment. It's just fake. And then to get around that, you have a lot of different networks, whether it be history or, or others that, you know, they'll, they'll cook up red herrings, you know, they'll, they'll go for the easy, the easy route which you know, is the quick and dirty way to drop in some alien references or cryptoids, you know, Bigfoot maybe, giants, uh, all, all the common suspects, which I really try to avoid like the plague because I've tried to build a rapport with archaeologists over years so they trust to show me things that they would never show a crew. So I've seen and been able to participate in things that you know, that the networks or other production companies just don't get access to.
3: And on that note, this segment, like the History Channel, should be history. We'll catch you in segment two, and we're going to talk about what is the Explorers Club, and we'll continue that conversation with Trevor Wallace. (laughs) Welcome back to episode 32 of a Life in Ruins podcast. We are interviewing Trevor Wallace, who is a documentary filmmaker and vice president of research and education at the Explorers Club. And because I just mentioned that, if you don't mind talking about and explaining to us what the explorers club is
1: yeah so at no point when i first stepped into the explorers club headquarters when i was 18 would i think you know i would become a vice president of this organization like i remember i first had gotten a scholarship to go to antarctica with this amazing program called students on ice which (laughs) has nothing to do with ice skating. It's a, it's a cool program that brings youth from all around the world uh, to the polar regions to learn about climate change. And, you know, the, the founder of that, uh, Jeff Green, is an Explorers Club member. And he, you know, saw a little film I, I made. And then he brought me to Explorers Club uh, headquarters to show it. And it's on the Upper East Side of New York City. And it's this Jacobian mansion of six and a half floors, just full of exploration history. So you have the globe that Thor Heyerdahl planned his Kon-Tiki expedition on. You have dog sleds that were first to the North Pole. You have Explorers Club flags that were on every Apollo mission. And you really are just, you know, you have this whole history and legacy of exploration, but also 3,500 you know active members who are scientists doing, you know, breaking research all around the world. So I thought, you know, my one of my main goals is to be, try to become a part of this club. And, you know, going into college a lot of the things, you know, research projects, grants that I was applying to were insights of trying to join this club. And it's really a club that's dedicated to scientific exploration. So it, it does have a, a reflexive and introspective look on what it means to be an explorer. Obviously, that has a lot of colonial baggage to it when you think about people like, you know, say Magellan or Columbus or, you know, kind of dictionary explorers, so to speak. But in the identity of the explorers club and, uh, you know, different members will have different views. But in my opinion, you know, the first explorers were the, you know, Polynesian wayfinders. They were the Paleo-Inuit that crossed through the polar regions. They were the people who used their curiosity to push to new new places and to adapt and understand and create new knowledge. And so really in the 21st like century, that. like, yeah, and it, it's, you know, everyone, you, you might ask other Explorers Club members and there's a, you know, average age in the 60s. So you have a lot of people from different generations, but there's, you know, most new members are female you know, I'm part of a diversity, equity, and inclusion committee that has been looking into the history of some of our members and trying to, you know, reconcile a lot of the things that, you know, for example, Teddy Roosevelt was one of our members, and it's a complex history. He, Without Teddy Roosevelt, we wouldn't have a lot of national parks. Uh, we wouldn't have national parks with his 1908 Antiquities Act, but in the same vein, you know he was shooting some of the these endangered rhinos and stuff and, and and other things so it's a it's a legacy that we're you know each member is 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 dealing with well
2: yeah i think that's super interesting especially in this day and age that you're like really cognizant of that you know like definitely especially with roosevelt like, he's got a definitely a colorful, colorful history or
0: yeah colorful, colorful to say the least yeah, yeah just I, i'd say colorful <laughs> yeah. it's he's an interesting man in many many regards and you know time and or history has looked at him in in a multitude of uh, uh perspectives but Trevor do you think the three of us are uh explorers club material
1: yeah i mean i think a lot of people uh, absolutely like without hesitation i think that all of you have been doing field work you're contributing knowledge so a lot of people think oh yeah because the Explorers Club has these famous firsts, like first to the top of Mount Everest, that you need to be some kind of mountaineer or extreme endurance athlete. That's not really the case. More so your scientific credentials mean the most, which I think is cool. There's not a lot of clubs or organizations where like the people we're most looked up to are the people who are scientists. But it's about knowledge. Like, you know, there are some aspects that like separate us from, say, You know, NSF, which are like purely science and a lot of lab work, like with Explorers Club Expedition, there's usually most of it is out in the field and doing adventurous things. uh, But all of it is in the pursuit of knowledge, which is not necessarily like the introspective knowledge you get from like, you know, paddling a boat around the world, but sort of contributing to our knowledge and understanding of the world around us. And that includes conservation, that includes new kind of pillars of our mission which is, you know, going beyond what have been some of the goals of members in the past.
3: Yeah.
0: And you've been able to meet a few uh, astronauts through uh, your membership, correct?
1: Yeah, it was really cool. So, uh, Gino Kaspari and I, Dr. Kaspari, I should say, got the New Explorer of the Year Award in 2018 when we had first documented Tunuk 1, which is this uh, Scythian Kurgan in southern Siberia. And one of the other awardees was Captain Jim Lovell, who was on Apollo 13. So that was pretty incredible. And but you know, was there a lot
2: of gravity in the situation when you met him?
0: <laughs> Jesus.
1: I, I did not I was almost tempted to say to ask him if like Houston we have a problem, but uh slow hanging fruit. you gotta go for it. <laughs> yeah. Might have caused
0: some some flashbacks for him.
1: Yeah, he's um, you know, out of all the astro- astronauts, are actually a lot of the guys who've done the most impressive things. You know, you know, women, all of these explorers that you meet. You know, I've met Sylvia Earle. You know, Jane Goodall's also a member. Should mention. Um,
0: <laughs> David, David watch out. 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 He does not want a part of it.
1: Yeah, he's done. But the you know the people who've done the most are the are the most humble. And you know, even Jim Lovell, he he shared that he had like failed his physical. Multiple times, you know, he was not some specimen of, you know, in terms of like, the best of the best astronauts, he said that it was really his persistence that put him above and, you know, in that whole situation where he saved his crew members lives, it was really his, you know, mental fortitude. And he's just he he was a really cool guy to meet.
3: Um, I really love that there's these kind of, as you had mentioned, there's these two sources of funding, these two big sources of funding. You kind of see, you know, you got this NSF really science-based stuff, but you also have this Explorers Club thing, which is super cool because you need, you need both of those things to take science and any sort of discipline further. You know, you, you need the people who are doing all the lab work and, you know, putting in all this scientific, you know, lots of data crunching stuff like that. But you also need people who are willing to push the envelope and take those next steps. And I, and I, I love that you guys are supplying that stuff and kind of building off of that. Do you guys have any specific like bases or locations that you guys kind of operate out of at, at this point?
1: Yeah. So the, the headquarters is in New York City, as I mentioned, in the Upper East Side, but there are 35 chapters worldwide. There are 13 international chapters, I believe, and some are more active than other ones. And then you have them all over the U.S. There's a really active Southern California chapter. There's the, the D.C. chapter is really uh, you know, involved. There's a lot of overlap with NASA as well as National Geographic. But more and more, the club is also becoming like a virtual space. So in my position as vice president of research and education, one of the things that I've been doing is connecting explorers to classrooms and trying to provide opportunities for people who are doing field research to talk to K-8 kids, to high schools around the country. And then a lot of my job is providing these grant opportunities. So we have seven different grant programs. That we support, you know, over a hundred explorers every year, actually going out into the field. And just recently, we announced a, a partnership with Discovery Channel, which uh, is offering us a uh, million dollars a year for grants. And I put together the application, I put together a really solid committee, mostly of PhDs from various field disciplines to take in applications. And it's been really amazing. We just greenlit five projects amounting to $250,000, some really cool stuff. But I really hope that anyone listening to this podcast will go to explorers.org, check out the pre application, feel free to reach out to me. Because, you know, I think that there are more amazing projects to come, and I think that the flexibility of Explorers Club funding and the the openness to storytelling is something that makes this program pretty unique.
2: Speaking of storytelling,
1: uh, I guess I was most just of about
2: our to audience...
0: say the same thing. <laughs> That's an amazing segue. Continue, David. Sorry, to I didn't
2: interrupt. You're good. I was like, <laughs> cool. Uh, so, yeah. Speaking of storytelling, uh, most of our audiences familiar with our ramblings of how archaeology operates so in your experience like how does production operate so i've been a pa before on a set it was like a commercial for the blu-ray release of jumanji 2 real riveting but like how how does it work in an archaeological setting like i'm sure it's way different
1: yeah i mean i think that for the first part, a lot of, and this is when I taught this semester long course at Sarah Lawrence college, when you're a documentary filmmaker, a lot has to do with the work you do without a camera. And I think that, you know, with kind of unlimited memory cards and filling up hard drives, there's a real uh, risk of shoot overshooting of running around with a camera, putting a camera in people's face all the time uh, without really an idea of, of what you want to do. and, I think it's strange for people as well when they hear that my starting point is a lot of research and then writing a treatment. Like I kind of envision the story arc ahead of time, you know, oftentimes with three acts with people as characters. But then the interesting thing about documentary is that you have to be flexible and you have to keep your eyes open. And as things turn and change, that's where you have to be mutable to the subject matter. So Archaeological storytelling is very different because it's, in some ways, it's almost like wildlife filmmaking. It's a lot of sit and wait. And you don't know when something interesting is going to be found. You don't know exactly what a lot of things are when you're looking at them at first. I mean, in our field site in Siberia, like, you know, even just the soil layers, incredibly difficult to read because of this solifluction of like the freezing and thawing of the, of the soil makes it kind of ripple. So like what we're even looking at when we find an artifact, what time period is it coming from, you know, asking people questions. I mean, a lot of time it's like just having the archaeologists be my friends. So like they feel comfortable with me asking them questions as things are happening, you know, and then also like I dug a quite a bit as well because one, I was out there for five months, you know, each, each field campaign since 2017. And so I'm not just going to stand around with a camera. Like they, Oftentimes I would do like Tachka or like wheelbarrow work because I could keep my head up and see if there were finds being made on other parts of the site. But I think really actually understanding how it's working helped me, you know, start to build these narrative arcs and try to see where there are opportunities of, you know, storytelling there.
3: So there is, it seems like there's a lot of uncertainty on, on to, you know, how this final product is going to come out. How do casting agencies or people who you pitch this idea to, how do they kind of handle that?
1: Yeah. I mean, producers are tough. You need to find one that you really trust. And it took me years to bring on the executive producer, Macario Sarzoso, who has worked for Science Channel and and, um, Discovery and Nat Geo. And speaking with them, it was more like me interviewing them than feeling like the other way around. And I think for, for archaeologists and researchers, I think that should be your attitude as well. A lot of people sometimes are taken aback when a producer approaches them, they feel like very flattered. But at the end of the day, producers are a dime a dozen. And I, I, I hope I'm not hurting anyone's feelings out there. There's people who do their job very well. But people who can, researchers who are compelling on camera, and can speak well to camera can explain what they're doing and making it relevant to a broad audience are much more rare than people who can put together a line you know a line budget a production schedule and do all these things so it's important to protect yourself as a researcher and know your value and not you know oftentimes they do these things like recorded skypes which i've had many you know, opportunities to do these things. People see you and they say, Oh, would you be on camera too? And I've learned a lot through doing them, but you know, they do it in a bit of a shady way that I would never do with my, you know, the people that I work with. And I, and I hesitate sometimes. I don't like, I would never call these people, my subjects when in a way they are, but it's like, they just kind of put it in a black box. You do these recorded Skypes. You don't really know how they go. They don't know how they edit it. And it goes off to a network to get greenlit. And you know, with my sponsorship through New York Foundation for the Arts, it kind of cut me loose from a lot of those typical steps that you have to take. But, you know, in, in working with a lot of different explorers, we've had shows when they learn over time, you know, you want to be helping writing this stuff. You want to get producer credits. You want to take control of the narrative, too, and not just be quote-unquote talent because it can really make you feel burned. And I think that, you know, maybe you can get a show – in, in the short term or you can do something and their production schedules are super quick. Like when, you know, in talking with networks now when they're going to development on a show, it's two, three weeks max. Like that's a long shoot where, you know, I'm talking about five months and they laugh. But for me, it's like, what are you going to, that's why they end up having to make the stuff up because they don't have the money, the time or the patience or the ability. A lot of ways, it's like they not intentions aren't always bad. Usually not at all. But they just don't have the time um, to be there when real discoveries are made, when real things are actually happening. So they have to make them up. And you guys know that from watching shows. You know what that looks like and sounds like.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah. I struggle every time I, uh, like, if I need, this is going to sound bad. When I have not totally prepped for a class, I need some filler stuff and I immediately look, start looking for documentaries to teach my kids in my stead. And uh, I struggle a lot of times trying to find something that that accurately represents the science rather than just kind of the flashy business and some of those uh, imaginative interpretations of what's going on at the site.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, like imagination is good. Creativity is good, especially when you're talking about prehistory. A lot of it is imagining what could have happened, but you have to be honest with what is conjecture. You know, like I believe in science and I believe in the scientific method and in the way that people are trying to make real discoveries. And I think in a lot of ways, the truth is a lot cooler than the stuff that they make up to sell these shows. But it's, it's like it's a constant struggle because this is not the typical route that you take. I mean, for archaeologists listening, I think it's valuable to have representation. I think it's valuable to, you know, have an agent if you can. It's valuable to get practice. But at the end of the day, what I'm trying to do is kind of break the mold with what, what is being done. And we'll see. It's been, you know, it's, it's been a good run so far. We had an article in Nat Geo par- published yesterday that had some of my photos, which was cool.
0: Well, what Hold on. What article was that?
1: It, it was a cool one. It was about the trauma. So they've been analyzing the skeletons. There have been 87 skeletons that were excavated. The title of the article is Ancient Empire Collapse seen in violent injuries in Nomad Graveyard. So in our site, in the southern periphery, like we had this big Scythian cordagon, this big burial mound. In 2018, we found that it was actually had all these secondary structures that dated to different time periods. And, you know, it it was another 100 meters south. So the main cordagon is like, you know, over 110 meters uh, diameter. And then there was a southern burial field that we were just pulling out all these skeletons, various different artifacts, but they were clearly later, 2nd to 4th century AD. And we just found widespread violence. Like, you know, the the anthropologists and Dr. Caspari will tell you better, but they can say it was, you know, upwards of 30% of the people had these perimortem traumas. So, chop marks, puncture wounds... A lot of these little slices, you know, evidence of scalpings, really strange stuff as well. Like a lot of the the heads were put back. So we had the cervical vertebrae that was cut, but then the, the skull was like in situ back where? So, you know, it, it was just sort of strange things we're just beginning to understand now. And uh, the first paper came out from the Journal of American Anthropology. And then, yeah, Nat Geo picked it up did some interviews and had some photos published which was cool
3: so we're gonna put our heads back together after you just blew our minds (laughs) and we'll catch you on the third segment
1: (laughs) of our interview
3: with episode 32 (laughs) of a life and a podcast with trevor wallace
0: (laughs) (laughs) that was a struggle Welcome back to Life and Ruins podcast, episode 32. We're still here with our boy, Trevor Wallace. Trevor, you're not just documenting some of these archaeological excavations, but you also have participated in a couple yourself. And uh, could you please tell our listeners about those, those experiences uh, real briefly?
1: Oh, yeah, I have participated. I'll do whatever they say. Not usually doing anything too technical. Move this rock, you know, take this wheelbarrow there. But I'm happy to do it, and I'm such a nerd for all of this stuff. I, I enjoy it immensely. I've been on a couple surveys, been able to take some drone photos of new sites, things that look like you know maybe Bronze Age burials on these mountaintops, and learned a little bit about photogrammetry, how the 3D models are made. And it really helps me. It helps me with documenting what's going on. Uh, I love being in the, the anthropology field lab and seeing the bones being sorted, helping take some of those photos as well. I've taken a lot of photos with the artifacts and some of the, you know the some of the ones that, that were published and and some of the ones that are, you know, just for reports, you know, with the scale and all that. So I've really enjoyed it. I have nothing to compare it to, but I've heard that our site is is pretty difficult because of the groundwater, the mosquitoes, you know, it's living in a tent for, you know, four plus months at a time. It's not similar to some of the friends I have who've excavated in like Roman villas and stuff and have, you know, nice uh, Piedmonte wines and spaghetti dinners.
0: I was
2: going to say the excavations there are overrated, but the food part does sound pretty nice at (laughs) night.
1: Yeah. I mean, but I think I will say that like, I really enjoyed, you know, just the community of people involved in archaeology and the Russians especially has just been what sustained me over these years. You make really, really strong friendships uh, and everyone's working towards these hard goals. And I mean, last fall, we dug into October and it was pretty brutal. You know, we all moved into one tent. It was sub-zero temperatures. It was breaking through ice. It was at that point for some people it had been on site for like six months and it was it was hard. But I feel like that's what, that's like the thirst for adventure, that feeling of being out there and really going for it that makes it feel worthy of the legacy of you know the explorers club and and what we're really trying to do i'm proud i'm going back they can't keep me away
0: that's gnarly dude that's absolutely gnarly so we've kind of talked to through the course of this entire podcast that you have this like deep desire to uh, in science communication and accurately and, and, and through precision representing kind of the nature of scientific inquiry how is that like translated towards your social media? Because you're pretty prominent on Instagram, especially. And I kind of just wanted to talk a little bit more succinctly about your efforts in science communication in general and just public outreach.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think Instagram is a good way, uh, it, it's been a useful tool in reaching a broad audience of people who want to know what these questions are. I mean, I think empowering people to know what the debates are and to feel like, oh, I actually know what scientists are talking about. Because unfortunately, everyday person, you know, might not be able to access that JSTOR article. And like a lot of the, the guards, guardrails that are around this knowledge are not that easy to access. So it's a lot simpler to read Graham Hancock or something like that than it is to read a peer reviewed journal. But I've had a lot of really cool experiences. You know, I I, I post a lot of the photos and and stills and videos from Siberia. But wherever I go, I try to delve into the history a little bit and and try to take time to make sure it's accurate. And I do these live drawing sessions, which I started during lockdowns, which was just a way to kind of express creativity uh, at the same time as an interest with the past. So using the themes of, my archaeological work of, you know, different archaeological cultures relevant to that other ones in the places that I might be at that time to do drawings. And I used to be an art teacher. So I teach a couple, you know, I do my archaeo Bob Ross thing, <laughs> similar to some of David's, uh, you know, paleo Bob uh, <laughs> cave paintings, which I love. <laughs> So I channel that. But, I mean, I get, like, there was a little girl from South Africa who, like... We should team like, up on that. Oh, yeah, we should. I'm taking you up on it. Uh, I'll have to cool. up my costume game. But, um, yeah, I mean, like... <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, there was this, like, little girl from South Africa who, like, you know, sent me these messages saying how much she enjoyed the drawing sessions. I mean, of course, like, everyone, she showed me this rock. What is this rock? You know? <laughs> like, I'm sure you guys have gotten photos of you know people online you know what is this stone which you know i'm not <laughs> constantly jealous. absolutely um, but where'd was, you find that buddy I,
0: <laughs> I just get people who hit me up asking to help them find treasure in colorado like they're just like where do i find the gold and i'm like dude if i knew i i wouldn't be doing this as a career
1: <laughs> <laughs> the forest Fen. apparently they found that yeah yeah, yeah, I heard that. But yeah, I mean, there's people from all over who, who have tuned in, and that's what I love about it as well. It's like I don't have a, a massive following, but I do have people from all over the world who come together, and I hope to share things that are based in real research and to amplify the work of my collaborators, you know, the Russians from the Russian Institute of Material Culture, from the Institute of Bern and Dr. Kaspari, and some of the future collaborations I plan to have.
3: So you are currently in Hawaii right now, having, having a real hard life, living out there. And you just did a, a live drawing session. Do you mind explaining kind of the inspiration for that and what you ultimately ended up doing?
1: Yeah. So like I said, sometimes I'll just do a drawing session that's based in the place I'm at. And, you know, I start super basic since I'm not a expert in Hawaiian history or prehistory, but I have been in lockdown. So I've read a couple books. And I think it's just really cool, especially for people from the United States to try to learn about the indigenous peoples, the people who were there before European contact and colonialism, to really understand that. And there's such a rich and fascinating history here I did one session about uh, Queen Lili Ukulani, who is the last queen of the Hawaiian Kingdom. you know understand- Jesus,
0: did you pull that off flawlessly like I'm impressed <laughs>
1: I'm uh, I'm not a polyglot like Dr. Kaspar. He speaks like five languages, but I I try I try. Yeah, the that that entry point to understand that how Hawaii became a part of the United States. You know, really, she was basically kidnapped. So anyone who has the luxury of traveling here without a passport and thinks that oh they joined us is mistaken. And you know, before I jump into. You know, looking at prehistory here, and I've actually had people online reach out and say, "Hey, would you be interested in doing a survey or documenting some archeo- archaeological work?" I say, "Yeah, but first, like, you know, doing a bit of a rewind, hitting off those ones. You know, King Kamehameha is another one who unified the Hawaiian Islands. I did a drawing session on him, and yeah, I just I enjoy it, and I think that you know, wherever you are, diving to the history in that place it sounds super corny, but uncovering new things is everywhere. Discovery is everywhere. And yeah, you don't have to go to Siberia. It can be wherever you happen to be.
2: That's advice. I tell people a lot when they message me about like, how do I get into archaeology? The like, first thing I tell them is like, if you're not, don't. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> yeah. After that, yeah. Don't, don't pursue it as a career first off. Cause like you might as well be an accountant. You'll like it more. And then, for, you'll like, make more money. I
0: don't know if you'll like it more, but
2: Jesus. <laughs> you'll make more money. But secondly, like find out like where you live, find out what the indigenous culture of where you lived, what they did, how they survived there, and like how their culture flourished there. Because then like you'll appreciate where you live a lot more. Cause that like obviously people survived there and like a culture lived there before you did. So like they obviously liked it or else they would have migrated from that area.
3: Yeah, and that can be as simple as going to, like, uh, the local library or, you know, the local historic society. There's so much, at least in America, there's so much prehistory, or not a ton compared to Europe, obviously. But, like, there's there's stuff out there for these local communities. Like, I live in Montrose, Colorado, middle of nowhere, western Colorado. But we have a historic society here, and we have an archaeology society here. So, we can, there's, there's avenues to study this stuff. So for you young and budding archaeologists out there do that and also draw cool pictures on instagram
0: <laughs> yeah and stay away from graham hancock books they'll lead you down a weird path and eric Von and don't go there either
1: no no ancient aliens all of them that was actually a show proposal which would be like i thought would be interesting which would be try to disprove a lot of these guys or physically fight them
0: <laughs> i'm down if you need someone for that like let's let's go i'm your guy Choose yeah, I'm two.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, oh, I've become a huge fan of tiny little museums, like tiny, out of the way. I mean, I've spent my fair amount of time in the Met. You know, a lot of the work that I've done, as well as looking at you know repatriation, you know, cultural heritage, like looting and the illicit artifact trade, and you know, you have big museums that are full of that. But I love like the little podunk, out of the way ones where it has a very specific culture that you can learn about the whole arc of it. And, you know, this is a bigger national museum, but I was part of the, I was like basically the first foreign film crew to film in the the national museum in Kazil, where they have the Arjan two gold, uh, which was basically the richest Scythian Khorgan that was found since Peter the great. And being able to film these objects, you know, aside from it being gold and, you know, 50 pounds of gold, it's just beautiful as art. And, you know, there's only so much you can really get from, you know, artwork, but it can really inspire you. It can inspire you to wonder who these people were. I mean, of course, for me personally, organic finds like an ice mummy is the ultimate goal. But when you see that nomads were able to create such sophisticated, complex art themselves, you know, out in Siberia and, you know, the the Iron Age, it really changes your view on who these people were and, you know, whether they really were these, you know, outcast barbarians on the fringe of civilization, because the objects tell a different story.
2: That is pretty cool. Like nomadic culture. I think we talked about this on another episode that nomadic people like Clovis don't leave any art behind because they really don't need to. They don't have time to do so, or they like don't really feel the need to express it in that way, or it just doesn't preserve. But there's other cultures that just don't make art that are nomadic, but the Scythians, like obviously with those cool burials, like it's, they're pretty ornate. It's pretty
3: sweet. Yeah. And I, I also want to like, uh, continue on that point that like, uh, exploring small museums, uh, David and I, luckily when we we're in Orlando kind of went off the beaten path oh, yeah, to like this kind of super small museum and plain space. Yeah, absolutely. And it was those things, you know, they might not have as good a funding as, you know, these bigger museums, but they're, they're interesting and they tell these really interesting and super hyper local stories. And I, I think that was one of the coolest uh, museums I've ever been to. I mean, there's, there's a huge mastodon right in the beginning of it, but you know, I, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. I love those. I love that idea of, of exploring stuff like that.
0: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I'm recording this from West Virginia, and I think one of my fondest memories of a small museum was uh, Seneca Rocks here is a is a big climbing destination, and they have a visitor center. And to uh, do the parking lot and the visitor center, they had to do some CRM work because it's on National Forest Park. The whole point is that they have like a little small little archaeology exhibit. And uh, the first time I went there, I visited it, of course, went to the archaeology, and I was telling my parents about it. One of the rangers came up and asked how I knew so much. I told him I was an archaeologist, and he got like so excited because he was like the park archaeologist, and he has no one really to talk to archaeology about in you know middle of nowhere West Virginia.
2: Just and, like, brought out a bunch
0: here. of yeah. Just well, he ended up like bringing us to the back, bringing a bunch of artifacts out in these display cases, and we ended up like garnering a crowd around us as me and the state archaeologist were kind of bouncing back and forth about the artifacts, what it meant, what the area meant, what it looked like, and everyone was like, "Whoa." So people that showed up that day got like a a visitor experience that they otherwise normally because people come to to climb right like it's Seneca Rocks is this is this rock outcropping that's that's everywhere so to, to do that at a small museum and to engage with somebody else who loves archaeology as deep as I do and to be able to share that to the community that wouldn't wasn't expecting that I think was that that happens at small museums right that doesn't happen at necessarily at the
1: big ones
2: I guess on that same vein Trevor like what's probably like your most surreal or like favorite experience like being a filmmaker
1: Ooh, man there have been a couple I mean I think that there was some of these uh the first shaman ceremony blessing of our site was a pretty interesting experience because they don't typically let you film those And a piece of what we wanted to do is because we have a lot of local Tuvinians on our team that take, you know, and Tuvinian shamanism and a lot of the beliefs there are kind of a mix between Buddhism and animism. But it's very important for people to kind of ask permission from the ancestors and the spirits to do these archaeological projects. And I will say, like, amongst the Tuvinians that we work with, some of them are like, yeah, it's Hocus Pocus, and other people take it really seriously. So, like, you know, it's not like all people from there. Believe it 100%. Because oftentimes, you know, you get this kind of uh, noble, savage characterization that's kind of stereotypical. But I will say that a lot of people take this stuff super seriously there. And uh, it was a really interesting thing to experience and to film. I think when you film something, you're really looking at the detailed performance of what is going on. And as a filmmaker, you look at things differently and just being able to look at this shaman's costume, being able to observe the ceremony, how he set up the fire. In Tuvinian cosmology, fire is sacred. You don't throw trash in the fire. And the whole ceremony is done around the fire with offerings to the fire. And it just almost filming it, I felt like it almost entranced me. The way he was doing this drum dance was, was really incredible. And, and the chanting and it went on, it, it felt like you're kind of lost in that moment. It went on for yeah. an hour and a half, but it you you really you know, I didn't understand what he was saying and I had to have it translated later. But it was a really powerful moment to film.
3: Dope. Yeah, well, Trevor, we wanna start the ending of this this podcast by saying thank you for coming on and sharing your experiences with us and giving us advice on filmmaking and and kind of your journey. We wanna super thank you for that. And because this podcast is a life in ruins. We always have to ask this question and everyone's probably just groaning like, Oh God, Connor's going to ask it, but I'm going to ask it anyway. If given the chance again, would you still choose to film a life in ruins?
1: Absolutely. A hundred percent, man. It's made me kind of a vagabond transient human, almost similar (laughs) to the nomads that, that, you know, we're researching, but yeah, I'll take it any day as opposed to what did Dave say? Being an accountant, yeah, screw that. <laughs> no, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Not at all.
0: Well, ab- absolutely, Trevor. And we thank you so much for being on. And we hope that this is the beginning of a, a long and fruitful relationship with with you and, and the other members of the podcast. Um, where can our listeners uh, find you on social media and, and what would you like to promote?
1: Yeah, so you can check out uh, Worldwide Wallace on Instagram. My website is the Worldwide Wallace. if you want to check out some of my work. Frozen Corpses, Golden Treasures. Uh, if you want to see the updates of our film project, you can also follow uh, project partner Dr. Gino Caspari. His Instagram is just Gino Caspari. And then, for any applications to Explorers Club grants, please go to explorers.org. All over the, through the tab bar, you should see uh, where to see those different grant opportunities. And don't don't hesitate to reach out directly. Send me a direct message about a grant application or send me an email at Explorers.org.
2: And don't miss his uh, live drawing sessions. They're actually really riveting to watch. He's
0: a good artist. Absolutely. And well, everyone, we just interviewed Trevor Wallace, who's a documentary filmmaker and Explorers Club Vice President. So with that, we are out. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast.
2: You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins Podcast, and you can also
3: email us at Podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. So it is crappy joke time, and this one is going to be explorer themed. So gentlemen, what kind of pants does a cave explorer wear? Stalacters, stalactites. Oh, <laughs> <Jesus>. oh. <laughs>
0: <laughs> unforgivable! <laughs> oh, and with that, we're really out. Good <laughs> Lord.